Okay, Ira, I heard that no one had ever blessed you with an advanced role-playing game event. So I've gathered only you here today. Oh, thank you. Because I thought, you know, we have a lot of stuff to take care of. It's Sunday. Uh, and so I thought we'd make it fun. Okay. We'll make it kind of like a game. Yeah. Um, so first of all, before we get started, I have three pre-made character sheets for you to pick from. All right, let me see them. Yeah, you could be a barbarian. Okay, uh, I like that. You could be a bard. Hmm. Or you can be a rogue. And uh, think really effectively like about what would help you get all of your Sunday chores done. Okay, like rogue from the X-Men? No, not as cool as that. Sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, more of like a thief type character, you know, gotcha. sneaky like oh, I got to get my laundry done. I'm going to like roll into the laundry room and I'm going to quietly fold the laundry. Ooh, I like that. Do I get a hood? Am I wearing a hood? Yes. All right. I'm going to go with a rogue. Rogue. Okay. Perfect. All right. Uh, so what's the first thing on our list? Ooh, I love a good list. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, like we're not going to get any of this stuff done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the first thing we got to do, and this is great because you're a rogue. So think of it like a heist. What we have to do is we have to go to the grocery store okay. and we have to carefully go up and down each aisle, getting only the items that we need to eat and take care of other household stuff like cleaning supplies Got without it. walking out of the store without paying. Oh. So are you ready? Yes. Okay, go. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start in produce and I'm going to grab myself some carrots and slip them under my cloak. Okay, make a sleight of hand roll. Okay. Eight. Uh, you are immediately assaulted by two giant grocery store workers who have seen you uh -oh. shoplifting and are emboldened by your erroneous ways. They are gonna try to arrest you to jail. What do you what do you do? Okay, can I fashion a weapon out of the carrots? No. Okay. <laughs> you have one. You have a you have a little dagger under your cloak. Okay. Uh, do I have my phone? Can I call a friend? Is this that type of game? I'm not really familiar with this format. Yeah, if they take you to jail, you do get one phone call. Okay. <laughs> so you find yourself in prison with your one phone call. You have failed the quest. Wow, that was a lot. That wasn't quite what I expected from uh, my first epic adventure RPG. Yeah, you would be surprised. This is realistic D&D where the vast majority of people take big risks and fail horribly. Yeah, it's extremely um, grounded. I like that, though. Yeah, you should consider yourself lucky that your character didn't lose an arm or a leg. Well, maybe we can try again uh, next week. But for now, I suppose we should just introduce ourselves. Yeah. Hi, I'm uh, I'm here to pay his bail. My name is Caitlin Kaju. Uh, my credential, oh, I'm an animator and illustrator. And I know what you're thinking, not Rogue from the X-Men. I'm actually, I remarks. I write and draw comics and I'm very grateful Caitlin is here today to help me out of this situation that she also put me in. So I'm quite confused. I'll do it again. And welcome to our podcast about cartoons, where two lifelong artists and fans talk about the mysterious and magical process of bringing cartoon stories to life. In today's episode, we're going on one last big epic quest 
to find the Phoenix gem at the heart of Pixar's fantasy 80s teen road trip film, Onward. Welcome to Cartoon Feelings. Kaylin, I'd like to congratulate you on choosing this movie when you did. So congratulations. Thank you. Does that sound sarcastic? I really am. Yes, though. <laughs> yes, oh, it okay. does. Well, then I'll explain why. So we've Thank just... You. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we just did a run of uh, some real high bar fantasy from, from the 80s. And this week we're doing Onward, which... I hadn't really thought as much about this when we first saw this movie together back in 2020, so, so long ago. Before time was time. But this this movie is taking 1980s fantasy tropes in a... Uh, it's, it's taking them and stirring them into a pot in a very different way than some of the movies that we've been looking at have. And uh, I just think it puts a nice little bow on... The, the last month or so of conversation. You're 100% correct. And also, I guess I just want to say, although this probably only matters to us and in a very like not significant way, but as you say, as you claimed in our very first episode of Cartoon Feelings, this film, us seeing this movie together was like the inception of your whole idea of us doing this podcast. So yeah. it's like we're coming full circle in a way. Show's not over though. Like we're going to keep going. Yeah, it's more of a spiral. We're doing. Yeah. We've looped back, but we're kind of ascending. Onward, Tower, if you will. Tower of Babel style. Yeah. Till it all comes <laughs> crashing down. So thrilling. It's just a nice little, I don't know, put a little ribbon on there. Yeah. No. So, I, I, yeah, this, this movie, I, I like this movie and we'll get into what I like about it, but I partly like it because we saw it together and now we have a podcast. The end. It's a friendship movie. The content of the movie is meaningless. Right. It's more just about being in the theater that day and that time. An experience that may never happen again. I really hope it happens again. Please, please. No, don't. You're, you're just veering the van off onto the, uh, the trail of peril with a statement like that. So I'm we're trying gonna... to cast this magic spell of COVID over. Theater's open. So we'll check on that at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, we'll check back in with the news. <laughs> It's brewing now. All right. Well, while while we're waiting for that page to refresh, let's let's do a little escapism. So I, I think we got to talk D and D a little bit here, actually, because that's kind of uh, that's in the flavor of this film. Even though it's not, it's rarely directly addressed. Like there's kind of one scene where they they bring up an actual role playing style game, which I believe is called what is it, the Quest of Yore? I think something like that. It has Yore in it for sure. Full of yore. And, and I personally would have liked a little more of, of that game. And I think it's actually a game you can buy now. Um, so Really? Yeah. Whether it's out yet or not, I'm not sure. But they were working on it. So anyway, we're going to have a little our own little role-playing D&D conversation for a second. And it's going to start with just a very simple question. 
So, Caitlin, what fantasy trope character are you? And I know you actually play D&D, so um, it could... Uh, let's say it's not that whatever that character is, because I actually don't know. Well, I've played many characters in my time. Oh, okay. In the fantasy worlds that I inhabit. I guess now can now be a good time where I plug my other podcast that we're starting again. That's like sure where we play D anD D, but it's creative people. It's called Creatures and Creatives. Look it up. Uh, we had a first season, and then it was kind of like a lost tape situation where a lot of our audio was murdered, so it didn't actually resolve. But we are embarking on a second season now. Check it out. Anyway. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear it. So listen along with me. Yeah, it should be pretty good. It should be very um, fantastical, magical. Um, my character is a ghost in this one, so I'm pretty excited about figuring out how that works. It's actually not D&D either. We're playing a different system called Quest. Anyway, not Quest of Yore. Different thing. Different Quest. <laughs> There's so many to choose from in this day and age. But I take it that the question that you're asking me now is like, Caitlin Kadju, if you were a D&D creation, what would you be? Like, what's my class? Yeah, kind of. It's more of a uh, what's your sign type of question. Like, what's your sort of like I'm astrological so... alignment in um in the fantasy world? I'm so glad you asked me that because I was planning on bringing that up later because there are centaurs in this movie and I am naturally a Sagittarius. So you can tell that I have a lot of fantastical energies already. It's in the stars. I have a lot of nautical energy because I'm a Cancer, so I'm a crab. Oh, I do like the crab. So this is great. We're all fantasy creatures already. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have a theory about role playing games. This okay. is kind of a, a a little anecdote that will just go. It will resolve with an answer to your question. All right. Um, my theory is that the first time you ever play a role playing game. You tend to create a character that is you, which, I don't know, the more you play and the more you, like, create new characters, you get like, more and more invested in, like, the creative process and, like, the enjoyment of what that is and, like, how am I going to role play them and, like, what cool stuff can I do? But the first time you don't really know what the system, like, how the game works. Uh, so you're kind of defaulting to things that just jump out at you right away. And then that ends up being kind of more similar to you as a person. I think. Yeah. And my first character, her name was Poppy Pine Scrub, and she was a wood elf <laughs> druid. And I named her Poppy Pine Scrub because I, I Googled a D&D character name generator, and it came up with Caitlin Pine Scrub, which I think was absolutely hysterical. So I was like, well, I have to use Pine Scrub, but I'll change the name because I don't want it to just be Caitlin. Uh, but I loved the druid class because you can shapeshift into animals and there's a whole, like, system that deals with that. It's very, like, nature magic. And that really appealed to me. So I've played a bunch of other characters that are totally different or, like, all across the spectrum. But that's the one I think back and I'm like, yes. Like, this was what I just, like, casually saw in the D&D rulebook and was like, awesome. I'm, I'm going to love being a wolf or whatever and, like, ripping off the barbarian enemy's arms. And I did. And it was great. So did you, you didn't play in high school or anything, right? Is D&D kind of a new element of your social life? Yes. Okay. Uh, for a few years at this point, mm -hmm. but as has come up frequently 
on this podcast before, like my dad is very nerdy and very into tabletop game stuff. And a lot of the, the stuff that I like, you know, is probably from him in a lot of ways. And we spent a lot of time in game stores, like playing games together. And I would hear people playing D&D, you know, people at the next table would be playing in a big group. And I was always like, that looks really fun. Like, I want to do that. But we just never did for some reason. And mm-hmm. it's funny because now my dad also plays D&D, but like we just never sought to actually try it, I guess. And then in the past few years, it many, many a podcast has come out uh, and it's just sort of revitalized itself in pop culture. Yeah. And uh, it actually was like my DM on Creatures and Creatives, Evan Abrams, who is fantastic, Uh he and I met at a work thing. I was in San Francisco to do some Adobe videos um, for Behance. And he was the like the host of that. So I'd never met him before. And we were just chatting like on, the, on off days and uh, D&D came up and he was like, we should try it. And we went to a game store uh, in San Francisco and we just like did a drop in night with like 10 strangers who were already playing. And so we mostly just like observed, honestly, like didn't do a lot of dice rolling, but it was really fun. And he had played before and he was like DMs a lot. So that was really cool. And that was my first exposure to it. And then um, he actually lives in Ottawa, so we're not local to each other, but we just played online ever since. Beautiful. I am curious now, though, what your experiences have been and also what your sign is. Well, I don't know if this is reflective of my personality, but nobody's ever invited me to do any role playing ever in my life. And I don't know. A moment if of I silence. Don't... A moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it as like, oh, woe is me, but I just wonder if I don't present myself as like a uh, a team player or like someone that adds something fun in a situation like that. So I suppose my fantasy character is uh I'm like Strider, but never became Aragorn. I'm like just kind of the crummy guy in the corner who like, <laughs> no yeah, like one when, really wants to when talk When conflict to. <laughs> really popped off, like at the end when Elrond came and was like, we fixed your sword, like here's your sword, go do it. You were like, no, I really don't want to. Please <laughs> like, leave me alone. I probably just stay over here. I mean, I'm not I'm doing of, it. <laughs> I'm half joking because I thought it was just fun to tell like the opposite version of your story. But um, I mean, I've always been very fascinated with Dungeons and Dragons style stuff. And the closest I came to doing anything like this was in high school, we played uh, the Star Wars role-playing game. And I was just the the DM or whatever you call it in Star Wars. But this is probably another reflection of my personality. I worked really hard on the first day of the campaign where I made like this audio tape of, I uh, copied a bunch of sound effects from the Star Wars movies because I didn't have internet access at this point. So I was like, I need a TIE fighter sound. I guess I'll just have to go to Empire Strikes Back and tape it off the TV. And I had this whole like array of Foley art and and whatnot. And um, I burned myself out. I'm like, this is kind of fun, but this is a lot of work. Okay. Can I just say though, I'm like really (laughs) mad that nobody's asked you to play. And this is exactly how it starts. You do that, <laughs> you get really turnt on it, and then you burn out. Yeah. And then later, maybe you get back into it. But that's like a rite of passage. <laughs> You're natural. Being the, the kid who's like kicking the dirt over on the, the sidelines, like waiting for somebody to ask. I mean, I probably would play, but I, I think just there's something about my brain that's 
it, I feel like in terms of this sort of thing, I'm already at maximum capacity in a lot of ways. And I don't know if I could make a routine out of it. You know, I could do like a day or something. It's quite um, difficult, I will say. Yeah, I would think so. And honestly, I think that's probably a big reason why, like, nobody asked me for a long time, really, until it, that very specific scenario came up where I met somebody who was very into it. And I was like, we just got in a whole conversation about it. And then that kind of blossomed into this larger thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I like went for like 20 plus you know, years with not playing it whatsoever. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's hard. You, there are a lot of cool formats nowadays. Like one of my friends plays their D&D duets where it's just her and her fiance. And they just play together where like one of them is DMing and the other person is playing this solo story, which is not something that you usually think of when you think of D&D. But it's actually really cool because there are so many flexible ways to do it. Mm -hmm. But the worst part is you still need to have at least two people be able to get together on a regular basis consistently for a big chunk of time. I mean, it's generally hours and it can be really fun, but... It's tough. And even with our podcast, um, whether we're like planning to record something for it or even if we're planning to just get together for fun, there's still always like a 50% chance week to week that one of us has something come up or is too busy or like too exhausted. Yeah. And it's just, it's very difficult. So I don't know. Even people who do them like one weekend a month, like one day a month, struggle to actually pull it off. Which is just, I guess that's like, it's such a nice little social group thing and it can make such a big difference for people, but it's still like, it has all the same inherent problems. Yeah, there's something, there's two sides of D&D that I find very beautiful and interesting for different reasons. One is what it brings out of a group of people, like the joy and the creativity, which are just, you know, and camaraderie. Which is just something that creates that formula, I think, is just extra special. And there's nothing that really does it quite like D&D as an idea. And of course, that like I encompass all other like fantasy RPGs in that category because they're all sort of, and I mean, mechanics-wise, they can be very different, but I just mean they all create that type of situation. And the, the other side of it that I really love, which is where I've probably spent more time, is just the history of D&D. And um, the just the weird outsiderness of it all. And I, I feel like that, um, once we get into the movie here, part of the reason I really like it is it has this aura of a love for role-playing games in the way that um, some of the other fantasy movies we've talked about are about uh, like literary competency, like the way Gandalf has to read a book to understand the story that is about to unfold. Like we save the day by knowing how to play the game in like a Tolkien type of story. And that's very true for this movie as well. And D&D just celebrates like people that are willing to read and go like really deep on ideas. And I think that's a really cool aspect of it. And just when it came about in the seventies, it's just a weird moment of like, um, like there's some theory about it, it being relevant to the gas crisis of the late 70s and people were staying home more and so this game just sort of emerged in the way like during the pandemic people stay in more and new social elements come out of like just our connection through our computers it's like at that time it was like through the mail and people just sitting and obsessing over the monster manual 
Um, so there's just like this interesting correlation that always makes like what D and D is at its core relevant again. And it's just, it's just interesting that Pixar chose to do a fantasy style D and D movie at this point. I don't know if it's, if they're playing off, I don't know, like stranger things doing it or what, or it just happened to align, but uh, it's just cool that this stuff is just back in the conversation in such a huge way. Yeah, it is. It's kind of strange, like how people play d and I feel like it's also really different having not been there for the original days. Obviously, I wasn't born in the 80s and I wasn't you know, playing anything in the 80s. Uh, but you mentioned earlier that it, like, it really rewards people who are reading and like willing to crack something open and really get in deep with it, which is totally true. But also a lot of people play it very fast and loose, which is the way that I'm used to playing it. And I find it's a lot more how younger people play it in general. Mm. And like a lot of my intro to D&D before I actually started playing was D&D podcasts like The Adventure Zone, where the rules are completely not anything. Like it's just a framework that people are using to improv fun or weird stories and so there will be some dice rolling and they're they're pulling from the rules, but a lot of it gets thrown in the garbage, uh, probably for the best. But it's just interesting that how, like what D&D even is has changed a lot, it seems like, from what it was back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then what that means, because... Um, like my favorite podcast now, uh, which is Rude Tales of Magic, which is excellent. And you should watch it. Um, NSFW. <laughs> uh, but it's really funny. But it's also a D&D podcast, but it's like incredibly improv heavy. And again, like a lot of those rules are not anything. Like the DM famously proclaims frequently that he doesn't know any of the rules of D&D. And I think that is 100% true. But it's yeah. still great. But it's interesting because that's that's what D&D is to a lot of people. And that seems like the aspect of it uh, or the form of it that's very popular today. So I don't know that I have a greater thought about that particular phenomenon in terms of this movie. But it's certainly something I was thinking about, like, who suggested this kind of? And it definitely feels like it's more from that classic era of D&D, like a little bit more of the Stranger Things version of D&D. Yeah, that kind of just the the iconography at the at the very least, like the look of the the book covers from that early like 80s era and some of the art and like some of the monsters are just, you know, like the beholder, like these things are just iconic fantasy tropes at this point that they they almost seem timeless even though some of them are just weird drawings made by teenagers. That's where all art is made. <laughs> it is true. And I mean, <laughs> I think that's the other aspect. And, and this is a very, this is like a, a teen Pixar movie, I think, which makes it kind of unique in some ways. And we, we can go there, but let, let's hop in to the backstory of this movie a little bit. So like we were saying, the, the feeling of D&D is just basically comes down to like, the communal aspect, like bringing people together with like a common language or like a, a singular goal, at least for like the evening. And uh, the director, Dan Scallion. Nope. Nope. So Dan Scanlon's backstory with this, uh, you know, this, the seed of an idea here is that he grew up without a dad. He lost his father when he was three years old. 
And as a teenager, he came across a home movie of his dad speaking. Sound familiar to the plot? And this was uh, his first time hearing his dad talk. And apparently this tape was just like a single, like just small sound bite, but it became like this very precious artifact of his father because it was just like his actual voice. And uh, so, you know, that really resonated with him. And I guess when the opportunity came up to pitch a story to Pixar, this is the idea that came out. So as far as I can tell, of course, like, you know, take this all with a grain of salt because we're, Caitlin and I are always trying to patch these stories together as best we can. And our goal is simply to be interesting and inspiring, whether we're fully truthful or not. And correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're being as correct. I'm being as correct as possible. But I want to be inspired. Yeah, we're just trying our best. Yeah. So Mr. Scanlon, or Dan, if you will, takes this idea and he he wants to tell a story about growing up without a dad and having just this special little piece of him and what, what that can mean to a kid as a coming of age story. And I think from there, they graft on the fantasy story, partly because Dan and his older brother grew up in the early 80s. So Dungeons and Dragons was surely part of their life in some way, whether they were watching like the cartoon on TV or they were actually playing it. Well, let me say this really (laughs) quickly while you're saying that. But I read, I was reading some reviews of this movie because I never, I didn't when it came out. It just sort of, I don't know, COVID happened, I guess. And it became, it just like fell to the back of my mind. Uh, so I don't know where the D&D aspect came from. I don't know who suggested it, but Dan talks in a few interviews about how he doesn't know anything about D&D. And so it was kind <laughs> okay. of difficult to incorporate it into this movie and that he relied on people in the staff who did know about D&D to help integrate it. So I thought that was interesting because it feels like it, that it was not a choice that he would have made if left to yeah. his own devices. Agreed. I think that's the, there's a weird, um, I don't think this movie quite comes together as much as it kind of looks like it does on the surface. So I, I, I'm glad you brought that up and I'm glad you discovered that because I think that would have remained a mystery to me because uh, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Like I didn't know that until I, I read that those quotes, but it is interesting because it totally makes sense when you consider the movie and how the D&D-esque stuff manifests. It's just like not quite fully woven into the plot. Right. It doesn't seem like, yeah, like it was, that's why I was like speculating, like this must have been part of his life because otherwise why bring this element in? Other than you could kind of imagine that if you were sitting with a group of people and you were trying to create a visual metaphor for a father who was never really present, your first default is to like make it a magical world because that's the only way you can do something. And um, they settle on a half dad, just a pair of pants and feet, which is a a strange choice, um, even though it's like evoking certain like 80s comedies. But uh, it's it's a weird thing that it makes sense that it might have been solved amidst a group instead of, you know, written down by the director at an early stage. Right. Okay. So I thought it'd be interesting to get into a bit of the creative process behind the making of this movie, partly because it features an old friend of ours from our Burrow episode, Madeline Sherifian, who Very was the cool. director. 
yeah, a director that we both admire and cannot wait to see what she does next because we both had a great time with Burrow. Yeah, one of my favorite episodes. I don't have favorites, but that was one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> we love them all equally. <laughs> Our children. <laughs> so the, this is some information that comes from an article Caitlin and I were looking at from uh, Slash Film, where uh, one of their writers went to the set of Onward and talked with Madeline and Kelsey Mann, who was the head of story. Uh, about their process of, you know, fleshing this movie out up to um, the production stage. So basic uh, conceptual building here. So I guess they started with what's called carding, which is basically where you take a whole bunch of note cards, write down some general ideas of scenes, and throw them up on a giant bulletin board. This isn't exactly how I work, though I suppose it works really well for a group of people to generate an idea from. And at this point, I'm actually not really sure how much of a script they have that they're working from. I believe this is like a great way to rationalize certain decisions and try to create a general structure for like an hour and a half movie by just brainstorming scenes on like quick little note cards and getting like kind of in a, a cohesive narrative going. I haven't really done this myself, but since I've spent so much time working in editorial, like a lot of my coworkers at The Atlantic who were documentary producers, this is the exact process they used a lot of the time as they were trying to figure out the shape of their story. And so it would be, it's obviously different, you know, documentary is not something that you're just like manifesting. You go out into the world and you you shoot these things and you interview people and you assemble that into something that is compelling and that has this linear narrative to it. Uh, but it was interesting because even like after the fact, you know, maybe they have a subject, they go out and interview people, they go out and shoot in these various locations and they would come back to the office and have those beats or characters like people that they've interviewed, specific things they want to include. And they would write those out on note cards and pin them up on the wall and that like categorize them too. So there would be columns. So, you know, this particular thing is like kind of the act one of my story and then that would kind of help you take decide you know this this interview was cool but it doesn't actually add anything to my thing and it's just like a little bit easier to get all of that out before you actually sit down on a timeline in premiere or whatever and start like chopping up footage and like playing with all the audio and stuff it's just like paring it down to its essence Mm -hmm. uh and i have to imagine For animation, I I guess I've always sort of been under the impression that they don't really have a script until the last possible second. That's probably not strictly true, but ever since like the Walt Disney days, there's a lot of like storyboarding and storyboarding and storyboarding and like scenes that don't make it in, like, you know, Mm -hmm. scenes that are half animated and they they don't finish that and whatever. So it, it always feels like they're really chaotic in a way up until the last second. Yeah. But... I think part of that is the tech changes so fast and therefore, depending on what you can do, I think it could change the value of a scene. Because like for me as a comic artist, the tools um, and the output is generally the same. I mean, the main things that could change are it's in black and white or it's in color. But aside from that, it's not like there's a new augmented reality comic that I'm like working on and therefore like, oh, now I can finally do that cool 3D scene that I was always hoping for. So I think part of it is is that. And that's probably why it wouldn't make a lot of sense to really like lock in a script early on, because I think you're mostly 
debating what is going to look great on screen as like a visual story. And then later you kind of patch that into a script that, you know, the director can assess and like have more input on. Because I don't know if the director is always necessarily in there through all these like, you know, carding conversations. I might be wrong about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> you can Google it later for me. Uh, but I, I think Disney, like Walt Disney himself, pioneered sort of the ubiquity of storyboarding for mm -hmm. film process. And like not even just in animation, but then like live action movies started using storyboarding to figure out what they wanted to do. And it's just basically exactly what you're saying about it being maybe easier or a smarter way yeah. If you're making, you know, a visual thing to be focusing on that first. I don't know. The story is clearly not secondary, so that's not what I'm getting at. But well, I Well, it could be as as simple as like let's say I pitch you the idea like the woman enters the office. It's a it's a rainy afternoon. Like I could describe that and you and I could have totally different visions of that. Whereas if you draw right. it and show it to me, then we're instantly on the same page. Right. So I think it's more like visual literacy is probably way more efficient, right? Yeah. It's like, I want that flavor. I want to know what you're thinking. Is this going to be like cute and funny? Is this going to be really dramatic? And then once you start introducing even just like super weird, sketchy thumbnails with like the barest yeah. hint of detail and perspective, like that helps a lot. And I do think it's like, well, are we making a drama? Are we making a comedy? Well, like if I pitch that to you with storyboards, mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot more of the vibe that I'm thinking of than if I just handed you a packet of paper. I don't know. I've never written a script. So sorry. <laughs> I'm not offending script writers. It's probably really, really important and good. I don't uh, know what yeah. talking about. Well, I mean, I write scripts for all my books. So it it is, uh, for me, it's helpful. And it's helpful to do kind of shorthand of your visuals because for me, writing is faster than drawing. So it's more me telling myself the story back again, whereas my editor doesn't necessarily want to read my script. She wants right. to see the storyboards because that's closer to the finished result. Um, so I think these things work hand in hand with animation. And it's more like certain people need certain things. And also it's just better to iterate an idea over and over again because it's only going to whittle down to the best version of itself because like, you know, something that was great one day could disappear in the next meeting because it's, you know, the honeymoon is over or whatever. Um, okay. So we've, we've got this vision of this, this room and bulletin board full of cards, very old fashioned. And then apparently we hop into, again, you know, this is like taken from an article and I'm kind of moving through it quickly, but uh, they take all these scenes and they do start to build a script from this. And I guess things kind of start to part ways a little bit here. So you have like a script being written. And at the same time, you have a whittling down of these cards into storyboard elements. And I think the teams actually kind of start to break down at this point because you have different figures in the room who like some of them, their focus is cinematography or some are more like invested in the acting or you know, maybe some are editors and they're all, you know, deciding what they want to be pitching as like the crucial scenes of this movie. 
And I, I guess some of this idea is to um, this idea of like pitching scenes, which is to basically say you're going to get up in front of a group of people and sell that group on the value of your scene, what it represents for the story, what the characters are doing, how they're moving, how they're inflecting when they speak, maybe even like sound effects that are happening. But it's basically like you're sitting, they describe it as like talking to a bunch of kids in story time at the library, which sounds like quite a pleasant uh, experience. I would love to be an adult sounds amazing. back at story time. <laughs> but I, I think part of this is, um, you know, you can write down ideas and you can draw them out as much as you want. But as we've, uh, you know, we'll get into a little more when we start talking more in depth in like early Disney, but there's so much evidence of the animators standing up and gesturing and like making faces to themselves in the mirror to try to capture the emotional you know, the seed of the emotion through expression or body language. So standing up in front of a group of people is a great way to make sense of of your scene. And is there really a place for it in the story? And what does that look like? And uh, I, I had this little idea, and I, part of the main reason I wanted to bring this up and connect it back to our Burrow episode. Um, so go back and listen to that one. A little self-promotion there for a podcast you're already listening to. You're already invested. <laughs> so, so you love it. Yeah. You'll like yeah. this one. So this this pitching of scenes, even though I'm saying it sounds really pleasant to observe, it sounds extremely stressful to do because you're going to have all kinds of like feedback face-to-face when you're doing this. And the animated short Burrow is really about that feeling. So I'm wondering if um, Madeline Sherifian was thinking about the experience of making this film. When does Burrow come out, actually? Like, so I don't jump ahead. I say something that doesn't add up, right? It was paired with Soul. Oh, yeah, Although that's right. I do believe that it had been completed earlier than that. Yeah, in our Burrow episode, we we kind of dug out of that movie that it, it was dealing with these themes of like creative collaboration um, through looking at actual interviews with the director. And reading this article about the production of Onward made me realize this pitching scenes moment is exactly the type of anxiety that gets evoked through Burrow as like the little rabbit attempts to find its place in its little community and uh, validate its, you know, engineering choices in his little room design and whatnot. So I, I just like when all this stuff comes together and we can are kind of are slightly getting to know some of the, the figures behind the scenes here in Pixar. It is funny, though, because I'm just full of my little like anecdotes and quips in this episode. But uh, back in the olden days with the Walt Disney situation where you had to get up, you had to meticulously pin every single thing to a, a cork board and it'd be like rows and rows of all of your drawings. And Walt Disney would just like sometimes completely lose it or he would get up and rip your drawings off and like tear them up in front of you. <laughs> So it sounds like in some situations, it is very nerve wracking. So I don't know how much that's going on in this day and age, but, Mm -hmm. you know, critique is tough. Yeah. I mean, and some people would say it's essential. Like the, you know, with animation and all types of filmmaking, I mean, these industries were both growing in tandem here. So it's their... They're both influencing each other in terms of production and in terms of like the types of stories they're aspiring to tell. And there's so many awful stories of film directors who are just so, 
you know, focused on their vision that everybody's like um, personal well-being or emotions or feelings or just sense of self are falling by the wayside in pursuit of this idea, right? And um, it's always interesting to think like how passionate are some of these directors with some of these projects? Like if we go back to Toy Story, that movie doesn't feel like a visionary director so much as it feels like a magical collaboration of a big group of people learning something all together. And um, that's what makes that movie unique and special in the way uh, a film shot on film like could never really be because they're just not made in, in the same way. So that's like the one magical thing about, I think, animation that we're like figuring out a bit more here is that it's it's so collaborative. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like a little stressful, honestly, when you think, I mean, all the film industry is huge. A lot of people work really hard to make movies, obviously. Mm -hmm. And we just know too much about how animated movies are made, but it's very cool. Like it's very inspiring. It's cool that you can have so it can go horribly wrong. I'm sure Mm -hmm. Uh, it can be weird, probably, but I really like how collaborative it is. Like, I always love the idea of a story department where everybody is working together. I mean, you might you have your own scene and then your job is to sell that scene. But then we all kind of can decide, you know, oh, this doesn't work mm-hmm. ultimately in the story we're trying to tell or whatever. And you're just like over time, bits and pieces will make it into the movie. Uh, it's just kind of a neat, unique thing. And now this... um. The story building process goes on to bring in scratch recordings of audio and whatnot, but I'm going to jump ship off that journey right here and focus in on, I think we got to talk about the Pixar cinematography very specifically, because just thinking about that aspect and their investment in the technology, like the resources they had, you know, early on, we talked about like Steve Jobs funding this whole thing from the early days, what they were able to pull off in this whole expectation of that Pixar feeling, to me, I think really does come down to the cinematography they're capable of doing. And I think they have great people working for them. But of course, there are probably other great cinematographers out there, but they just don't have access to what Pixar has. And um, there's a specific person I thought we would talk about because she had a lot of interesting things to say about her experience with Pixar and specifically Onward. And that is the director of photography, Sharon Callahan. And she is a cool person and she has been with Pixar since the beginning. This is, you know, my first time really like thinking specifically about her. And I wouldn't even say I'd recognize her name in the credits. She's probably like, you know, six or seven title cards, like, deep in the the credits. But uh, listening to her talk about working on some of these films, like I just really came to appreciate her role in this. And uh, Caitlin and I both watched a short documentary that we'll put the link in the show notes here so you can enjoy it as well. But she starts by telling her story and going through just the very beginning days of her time with Pixar, which is, you know, Toy Story, like that, that first full length feature. So Sharon Callahan points out that uh, when they were making Toy Story, they started approaching that film. And I feel like they kind of, they must have made it in order in a way, in chronologically scene to scene in a way for her to say this. But the early scenes, they started by storyboarding in a very Disney type fashion, like Kaylin was just kind of pointing out this 
you know, like sweat box approach, like throw the drawings up on the wall, talk about staging and framing and all these things, decide what works and pull down what doesn't. They did that for a good chunk of the movie, but by the time they started getting to the big climactic scenes that take place outside of the bedroom, it seems like they realized that taking a more cinematic film approach to planning the story was going to be the right route for them. And so not storyboarding clearly giant part of it, but there's definitely this whole cinematography department that grew out of this need to understand the space and camera angles of cinema and film and then implement them in their 3D modeling and animation, thinking specifically about like lenses and light. And if you watch Toy Story, thinking about that, it totally makes sense because the movie seems to grow and get bigger and more immersive, like in a way, in terms of like the world grows and you you get more caught up in it and you get more interesting camera angles as the film goes on. Uh, so it totally makes sense for her to say that, yeah, we were truly like learning as we went through that film. And it's just like a dramatic jump in uh, approach as they worked on that movie. Well, yeah. And as we've talked about here and there before, advances in lighting have been some of the biggest contributors, I think, in making 3D movies look so incredibly real, like more and more over time. And I think it's what makes, if you go back and watch some of the the earlier CG Disney movies, they do look aged in a way that the 2D movies don't really. And I think a lot of it is the lighting. So if you go back and watch the first Toy Story, some of the textures you can look at, like the pebbly skin on T-Rex, and it's like pixelated and like your human eye can see it because we weren't working in like 4K or whatever back then. Like they didn't anticipate Blu-ray. So there's some of that. But like it's also just, yeah, the materials, but also the lighting and we mentioned before in Monsters University, I think was the first Pixar movie where they had this global illumination. So it's just like, it's basically like the sun. Whereas up until that point, they really are manually just placing every single little light. And with global illumination, you can kind of have this like, here's the whole thing. We have like a super light, you know, and then you're going to need more light just like we humans on earth do, but it adds a ton of realism and dimension to things. Uh, but it's kind of cool, too, because Toy Story and Pixar came out of this lo- this massive love for classic cartoons that people like John Lasseter had. But it's funny because, yeah, you're you're doing it all in 3D. So you're using a camera like it is a camera. If I'm sitting down and doing a 2D animated thing or, you know, if I'm doodling like a little cell animated loop of something cute on my iPad it's not, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's all just like representational. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm looking right now. I have this um, giant poster on my wall of Woody and Buzz from Toy Story 2 that I got at a Pixar masterclass thousands of years ago. It's really cool. <laughs> and uh, it's Woody and Buzz like lovingly gazing at each other through the power of friendship. And they're they're just glowing. And you can see the plasticity of like, Buzz's parts on him and his like glow in the dark parts and the the little textile elements on Woody's shirt and everything. But if if you're drawing something, like if you're doing a cell animated movie, you can just represent the light to look right. If that makes sense, like if I want um 
It's not happening in this particular image, but if Buzz had his uh, visor up, like that bubble visor, it's plastic and you'll see reflections in it of other things in the room or like the sky. Uh, and again, like if I'm painting something, I can just choose to represent that with color and shape. But like in a CG environment, you need the light to behave in a realistic way so that that thing is happening. And it also looks weird now increasingly weird to not have those things unless you're stylizing it in this very like art directed way but so in toy story one a lot of things are very simply represented because that was the technology they had they were pioneering this they're like making a bunch of stuff up as it goes and now they can do this crazy stuff with light and so i was listening to this podcast interview with sharon callahan where she was talking about in the early days if you wanted to have a light and then have that light be reflecting off of a surface somewhere else for that second reflected light, you had to make another light to represent that. And then as the technology increased, you could actually just simulate that. So the original light is behaving as it would in the real world, which is like more render heavy, more intense, but a lot more realistic. And it's just, first of all, totally insane. <laughs> really cool. But it also, it's... Yeah, you can't approach this in this painterly way. It's just not you're you're simulating. You're like creating a, a like physics of light, and then you need to know how does light work. You know how does the color of light behave on such and such objects and materials, and all of this stuff that you wouldn't quote unquote need to know in that in the same way if you're doing a cell animated film it is just like let alone stuff like camera lenses right and uh this this short doc i was watching she was like the main the main interview on it but they also brought in another dp adam habib who seems uh more invested and like responsible for choosing lenses and camera movements and they, they had some footage that was just making me feel old because I was in such awe of what was going on. But he basically had this like Oculus Rift type helmet and like a camera rig in his hands. And, you know, he was acting as a camera operator would. But basically what he's doing is exploring like an environmental space. So if we're talking about the movie Onward, take a scene like the bedroom scene where they uh, they summon the father for the first time. Understanding how big that space needs to be to to tell the part of the story it needs to tell that's best decided if you could actually be in that space. So it's like such a backwards way of going back to like just basic set design and like camera placement, but through like total super high tech 3d modeling. So they like build out these spaces, then the DP can go in them and decide what's working, what's not, where the camera's going, what needs to move around to present right in the shot and read clearly to the viewer. Um, and that was just kind of blowing my mind because it's it's so many layers uh, to basically just get back to that natural feeling of someone holding a camera, pointing it at something and like recording. Uh, so it's just it's just interesting the way like tech always comes back to just, well, basically what we want to do is simulate like natural realism in a way, uh, even if it's just like the shakiness of a camera. Yeah, this is a very brief aside, and I should send this to you because it's really cool. But there's this video game, apparently, that's coming out soon called Harold Halibut, and I don't know anything about it except for the trailer, 
But if you watch the trailer, it's very clear that it's emulating the stop motion Wes Anderson style, like very specifically. But it was all done in Unity. So like a video game creation program with 3D capabilities. But it like is painful to the brain because it looks so <laughs> real. And it's – yeah. We have that already, right? Even like Leica in a lot of their movies uses CG to supplement their stop motion stuff. And like, you can't tell the difference. So like, we're getting there. But that was the first thing I've seen in a while where I was like, oh my God, like soon we're going to be at, like, we'll have ultimate control. <laughs> like yeah. you've just made a whole actual world in there and then you have perfect control over it because there are no external elements. It's just all in your box, in your computer box. Yeah, and it it's still to me, even though it looks amazing, I think this movie looks great. It's probably I don't know, it's a complicated feeling to to break this down, but I I feel like this movie looks great and I love the space it occupies, but like you just said, it it is in a box. Like there's something very tiny about it. No matter how far they go out from their little suburban home, the sets all feel like miniature in a way. I don't know if it's part of the uh the design choice like it i feel it's very evocative of disney world architectural and engineering design in the way that you have a two-story building but it's actually like one and a quarter story and they scale up the windows so they seem large and maybe they angle the building in a certain way or they or they lighten the colors as they move further away from you. So it seems like it's kind of caught in the atmosphere a little. Um, this movie, the design of it feels like it's evoking some of that. It's like scaled down. I, I don't know if you know what I'm saying or if you get that feeling, but there's something very stylized like that. Yeah, I'm puzzling over it a little bit because I agree with you. I hadn't really thought about it before. Uh, and I could. there's an argument, I guess, to be made that it's very intentional because there's there's some themes here about the fantasy the modern fantasy world so aka not really very fantastical like not magical is very constrained and small i guess and personally i really don't get into this movie that much until we get into the third act where they're more like out in the wilderness on this quest and it i think that's a big part of why is they're like in these big like lord of the rings esque like rolling hillscapes and you don't see anything else of that before. You're just like weird small town vibes. Oh, interesting. Cause I really, I wouldn't say I'm the opposite, but I, I really did love the kind of road trip through the grimy city standing in front of a, an old vending machine feeling of, of a lot of this. Cause I don't think I've ever seen that I just haven't. I know I haven't seen it. I, I haven't seen that brought to animation that like eighties road trip, feeling vibe of just kind of old neon or just, you know, commercialism and marketing coming at you from every angle. Like they're always in like a gas station or like they're on a grimy, oily road and there's just like one street light working and they're like merging onto the highway. Just all the 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 grime of the city in this movie, uh, I just felt was really special and like lovingly done and i i think part of that is something that like sharon callahan was talking about with like the the way they use color and light in this together you know basically for the goal of you know evoking emotion that's that's the end goal of this there was like a pete doctor quote that she mentioned which is probably something that's like painted on a wall somewhere where you pose yourself the question what information do we want to give the audience and then 
how do we want them to feel about it? Which is like that extra Pixar question. It, it's like telling people how to feel in like, but extremely subtle ways, which could be simply, okay, when we show Barley, we, we um, use kind of a shaky cam because he has like this nervous energy. And then when we show Ian, it's like the camera's more steady and it makes you feel like more at ease and uh, maybe even a little more rigid. And then when we, you know, light certain characters, there's like different approaches in each little scene in this movie is, has like a color palette that's supposed to feel like a, you know, a bit of a D&D campaign where like, for example, she mentioned how when they're in the scene where he's um, using the magic staff to try to scale up the gas tank because they're out of gas and they need gas. So Barley's like, oh, just blow up the gas tank and we'll have gas. The coloring in that is very green. So it's supposed to evoke, it's like the swamp level of their like a D&D campaign. And when you watch that, you're like, yeah, I guess I didn't really notice how green it is until she points it out. But you're feeling it when you're seeing it. You're feeling how distinct that scene is from like anything we've seen before or after. So I, I think it's, it was just really interesting for me to watch this movie for like the third time and look at it just in terms of like light, focus, color, and uh, framing. And it, it was uh, revealing in very different ways. Yeah, all I have to add to that is the lighting is really incredible in every way. And like the, the scene... That jumps out to me. Although I agree with you that the scene where they pull over and they go to the uh, vending machine is so gorgeous. Like the vending machine is like bright red and it's reflected all over them. And like that's very pleasing. I don't – it's exactly the way you're describing. But also like the van is open behind them and the dad is in there. And like the interior of the van is like woody and like orange and super warm. And then the night is all like sad and empty around them. And it's just – I don't know. It's very striking. But I also thought just, I guess, purely on a technical level, but the highway scenes when uh, Ian is driving and his brother is like, you have to merge, (laughs) which is like a nice, that scene I enjoyed. I like that one. Um, But the lighting of the car, all the car lights on this like heavily trafficked highway at night is a lot. It's like almost too much. And I don't, actually mean that it's not it's really good it's just like so impressive you know i like reading books about filmmaking and um her conversation about her whole thought process and you know she was talking about doing ratatouille and going to france and just doing like color studies of the light in the fall like passing through the trees or like sitting down by a gutter and like finding out what particular gray those stones are um, just these like little intimate looks that when you go back and you sit in front of your computer back in California and you're in this like closed, controlled environment, like you need to remember what like the outside world looks like with these like little notes to yourself. And uh, she just had a really nice way of kind of pointing out that you you have to go out and you have to like know what the world looks and feels like if you're going to be able to come back and like expertly render these things with, um you know, like these tools that that have been given you that that's always like a good reminder because i feel like even though you know i do sit at a computer all day even though i try to think that i don't i am always looking at a monitor because i don't draw by hand anymore and um you know and you sit in front of after effects all day and i think it's very easy to like get lost in that world um 
And I feel like the Pixar people are always so good at like reminding you, like, you got to go outside because like that's where that's where like the inspiration comes from for these like emotional stories. Onward takes place in a fictional realm of fantastical origin. Uh, once upon a time, quite literally, uh, it was a wash in magical creatures, pegasi, pegasuses, centaurs, etc. Probably like ogres and wizards, and people did magic, and they had like wizards' apprentices and and such, but. Much like our own world that we live in today, people were lazy and magic was hard, I guess. And so it was slowly but surely supplanted um, by the seduction of technology. So when we get into the meat of the story, we're in present day magical world where the characters are elves and unicorns are like the modern day equivalent of raccoons. And we have dragons as dog equivalent pets. But no one is casting spells anymore. Like, there are the trappings of magic in the world. But there is no magic left. Uh, so we are in a, a humble suburb with our two elf brothers that we spend most of the movie with. Ian and Barley Lightfoot. They live in New Mushroomton, which is very cute. Uh, the houses are all like... Big, thick mushrooms, which is really nice. Uh, and Ian, it's his 16th birthday. And Ian being a, a youth uh, of a certain caliber is very anxious, I would say. Very shy, like seems to struggle socially. And his older brother Barley is like very loud, brash, kind of big older brother energy where he's he's very like sunshiny and positive, but also seems like... Uh, I don't know, kind of like a like a nerd, but also I don't maybe a loner a little bit. Like he doesn't have that like a uh, like I'm like emo or whatever. But like you know, you get the feeling that he's kind of like just like hanging with himself a lot of the time. Uh, and also like a minor side character is his van Guinevere that he claims to have built himself, and it's like very ramshackle. It has a big Pegasus spray painted on the side very tastefully and that's his baby so that is barley the older brother uh so both of these boys father wilden lightfoot passed away right after ian the younger brother was born uh so ian never really met his dad and even barley the older brother only has a handful of memories of the father so they live with their mom and uh i don't think he lives there but they're not a stepdad. And her, her boyfriend makes a few appearances, the centaur police officer, whose name is Colt Bronco. <laughs> he seems like a sweet guy. So it's Ian's 16th birthday. And because this is such a momentous occasion, Laurel, the mom, gives him a gift that was predetermined for him by his father who knew that he would pass before he would have a chance to get to know his youngest son. And so he left them this wizard staff and a rare magical item called a phoenix gem, along with a scrap of parchment with a visitation spell, quote unquote, that can bring back their dad for one 
full 24-hour period. Barley tries to cast the spell at first with like great pomp and circumstance, totally fails, can't get anything out of it. Ian tries to do it. And it turns out that he has the gift of magic. So he's able to execute this spell. Uh, but with a twist, they kind of screw it up and only half the dad shows up. <laughs> the bottom half. So not preferable. So it's all legs. Uh, and this is horrific. <laughs> and so the boy is, uh, they decide that they're going to go on a quest to get another Phoenix gem, which is this crucial element of the spell that they have to have one. And it's like, these are incredibly rare objects. So they're going to go on a quest to find another one so they can complete this spell and hopefully get some of that day to spend with their dad. Because uh, the clock is already ticking since technically half of them is already here. So they're on the clock. They got to go. And we do find out at this point that um, the Phoenix gem and magic and spells like the visitation spell... Barley has intimate knowledge of all of this stuff, not because he is like a secret wizard, like apparently their dad was, but his D&D equivalent game, which I think we is called Quests of Yore, something to do with Yore. Uh, he knows that backward and forward. That's his favorite stuff. So he knows a lot about magic because that game is based on only true things. So all the spells are real. He can't perform them. He doesn't have the gift of magic, but he knows them really well. And he also knows, because he knows all of the quests that are in this game, that they need to go to the Manticore's Tavern in hopes to find the map that will take them to another Phoenix gem. So they travel to this tavern, and it is there, and there is a Manticore, but it is also a cheesy family restaurant, like a theme restaurant. Uh, and the Manticore, whose name is Cory, huh, cute. <laughs> Uh, is a harassed manager more than anything else. Uh, so they have a little bit of a confrontation with Corey because they really want help and they really want this quest to happen. They really want to spend time with their dad. And they uh, reignite the passion of questing in Corey, who has um, justifiably, I would say, become concerned with mundane things such as like the legality of like being liable for people who get injured in these quests that she sends them on. And like paying her shareholders and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but she's also dead inside. So their passion, you know, gets her back on this, this train. But she doesn't actually tell them where to go next. They, they figure it out in a roundabout way by taking the kids menu that has this cute little game on it uh, that's supposed to be filled out with crayons that are passed out by the hostess. And if you unravel that puzzle, it will tell you that you need to go to Raven's Point, which is a mountain nearby. So that's almost a map. They take this information and they go. Meanwhile, Corey the Manticore is having a meltdown, a revelation. So Ian and Barley, uh, they at this point, their quest really kicks off, gets underway. And they go through a series of hmm, quest-like events episodes, if you will, various challenges and trials, uh, as you would on a magical adventure. And all throughout these perils, Barley is teaching Ian different spells uh, to help them navigate the, the various trials that they face. Uh, and on the flip side, known only to us as the audience, the mom 
has uh, figured out what they're up to, and she is in pursuit, and she ends up meeting up with the the manticore because she traces their footsteps to the tavern, and uh, we also find out simultaneously that Corey left out some critical information about what these boys might need to have to overcome a curse that will pop off if they manage to succeed to the end of their journey. So we have this element of urgency happening in the background. So Ian and Barley, they uh, they fight a gelatinous cube. They walk over an invisible bridge. They ride a giant Cheeto down a non-magical river, but still a river through a cavern. And they pop up after all of these, you know, these adventures, all of the bonding that they've been doing. They pop up right back where they started, um, which is in the street, like through a manhole right across from their high school, which is disappointing. But it turns out that they were completely correct. This is exactly what they needed to be doing. And the Phoenix gem is in the fountain in front of the school. But when Barley figures this out and he plucks the Phoenix gem, curse. Oh, you forgot about that, didn't you? Here it is, <laughs> coming to fruition. This curse emerges. And uh, just like any curse, it rips apart the surrounding environs to create a giant dragon. <laughs> and the dragon attacks them. And it can only be defeated by being stabbed in the core, which is this like magical glowing spot deep within its, its confines, because it's like a golem made out of stone and brick and all this stuff. Uh, and it has to be with this particular sword that, thank goodness, Corey and Laurel, fierce du- magical duo, have retrieved alongside Ian and Barley. Well, separately. They're not together, but simultaneously. And they managed to defeat this dragon. And at the, the last possible second, they managed to complete the spell. And they get... Well, one of them gets a little bit of time, a little sliver of time with the dad right before that 24-hour period runs out. And that person is Barley, the older brother, as Ian has a revelation that, you know, it's very sad and it's hard that he didn't ever get to meet his dad. And and he still didn't by the time the movie's over, but that his brother is actually a huge, huge presence in his life and all the experiences he wanted to have with his dad, he's had with his brother. So he has something to celebrate at the end uh, and he feels good about their relationship and they are happy. Magic doesn't return to the world per se, but along the way, you know, people are a little bit happier. Um, for example, Corey is still running a restaurant, but it's a lot cooler now. <laughs> she is able to breathe fire freely. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so the world is just a little bit brighter for this this quest that these two brothers have gone on. Roll credits. Carly Brandile. Brandile? What's her name? Is that who sings the song? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just getting Brandile. <laughs> Sounds right to me, but I say everything wrong. Brandy Carlisle. I am drunk. I was like, I can say it like seven (laughs) times before I get it. Brandy Carlisle, I believe, is the one who sings the end credits song. And it fades in gently. I wish they would have um, 
committed a bit more to the sort of like dungeon crawly vibe of barley uh you get one moment where you get a real kind of light metal composition when they're driving guinevere i i think the uncredit song should have just been like just some loud guitar rock like in the in the style of a you know like fantasy rock music instead of this kind of like I mean, I was fine with the song, but I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to to go for it. But they didn't Yeah, do it. I have like mixed feelings where overall, I think this movie's pretty good. And I enjoyed it more the second time, actually. But it feels like a little bit mixed in certain things. And I, I feel like, I don't know, that this is 100% just personal preference only and has no bearing on the quality of the movie in any way. But I realized as I was watching it, I like don't really like the like modern society plus fantasy mashup. And I guess like as a genre, it just doesn't work for me. So I just like wasn't really getting into it. And so all of that stuff kind of wasn't working for me. And even so the end credit song still has a little bit of like a throwback Americana vibe, not too distant from some of our previous episodes music, such as Don McLean or America. Um, <laughs> Just somewhat in that same flavor. And I was just like, I, I don't know. I guess I just, it works for me in those older movies, but not here quite as much. Although I think you're referring to the part where uh, he sacrifices Guinevere the van to to get the police off their tail. And he puts on this cassette tape that's like Ride to Valhalla. And it's like, yeah, playing this like 80s rock thing as the van like triumphantly soars to its death. And that part was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I think there's some scenes. I, I guess we're just going to have to be a little. Our feelings are a little more contrasted with this one because I'm kind of really in, not really into. I I really like some of the 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 realism they're bringing to some of the aesthetic. Like, you know, back on the lighting conversation. When they go to the pawn shop and there's uh, the weird like yellow-eyed goblin when they have to get the sword back, I love the look of that. It it almost feels like it's um, black light-ish in there, like her eyes are so bright compared to like the darkness of the space. So I guess maybe I, I'm just appreciating the, the stepping up the contrast in terms of like lights and darks a bit and, and just playing with- Oh, and with- she's the best character. Yeah, she looks. <laughs> she's cool. barely in this, but like, yeah. she's so wonderful. The pawn yeah. shop lady, like, and her design is so great. She has this like slithery serpent's tongue that's just like very active. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really nice. I get. I almost. I want things in this movie to be a little more unhinged. In that yeah, same I, way, I think. Yeah, I think this could have been a really cool. Yeah, like I was saying, kind of teen fantasy movie where you could take these little set pieces and go a little further because plot wise and everything it it's playing it very safe even though it has this really odd element that um to me is the the thing holding it back from coming together really well which is um the idea of the the pants dad so first of all there's a couple of reasons I have a problem you'll notice in the chat I put a link to a Dr. Seuss story. Are you familiar with The Pale Green Pants by yes. Dr. Seuss? Uh, this story, this yes. story 
terrified me as a kid. It's basically like a Friday the 13th, like slasher story as this kid is like stalked through the dark by this pair of green pants. I have vivid (laughs) memories of reading this book and being like paralyzed with fear. Like just a kid sitting alone in my room, just flipping through this book, being like, "Ah, ah," like just being so terrified. It's so creepy. Yeah. And it's still creepy now. Reasons it's creepy. If you're unfamiliar with this story, look, just the look of it, it's it's kind of a this tealish green. So it's nighttime through the whole book, and the only spots of color are the yellow of the little bearish character, and then the olive green of the pants. So let me just read like a quick little ex- excerpt here so you get a taste for the story. When I was deep within the woods, when suddenly I spied them, I saw a pair of pale green pants with nobody inside them. Like, is that a story you want to hear? No, it's terrifying. Except I'm like, I don't know. I read it multiple times as a kid. But yeah, these pants want to kill you. They don't. I guess they're friends at the end, but like, holy (laughs) shit. So that's my relationship with like disembodied pants right off the bat. And I, I, I would guess that somebody at Pixar working on this film was like, oh yeah, that Dr. Seuss story. So- do you argue for the pants dad or against it if you're familiar with the story? Because it's it's upsetting visually in general. But also, I can see the compulsion to want to rise to the challenge of having a character be simply a pair of pants, colorful socks, and shoes. Because they do some genius things with it in terms of like making it believable, making it relate to the boys. Like they have this little like tap on the shoe thing they do. Um the body language of the pants dad, I think, is pretty great. When he first is summoned, he he's like checking the floor with his foot, and um, he like backs up and steps on a marker and like almost falls over. He there's enough little subtleties where you can really feel the care and love that went into this idea, which will probably like never be seen again in the history of animation. Just a pair of like pant dad pants. Well, until they make the feature length adaptation of this Doctor Seuss story. That's true. I will watch that in horror. <laughs> so um, there's that. Now the the idea of the of the summoning of the pants dad and the visitation spell, like we, you know, we've been talking a lot about fantasy and fantasy storytelling. Usually, the reviving of the dead spell is like a necromancer thing, and it's bad and it's evil, and it should not be done and never should be done. And if you do it, you're treading on upsetting territory. So to me, it's kind of the wrong approach, right? From It's the wrong solution to telling a story about um, a kid who thinks he's missing his dad, but what he's actually missing is um, like coming to terms with like his brother being a role model. Like if that's the story you want to tell, I think the pants dad magic spell is very distracting from that story because so the dad, the idea is that the dad had the idea to, when he was very sick, create this spell so he could come back and see his kids because he was going to really miss them. But I feel like he shouldn't have wanted to do that because if you know enough about magic, you know that, you know, returning from the dead is just like a bad idea. Even Gandalf is like, Dep, I'm only back for to do this because it's the end of the world and I need to help you. Um, but other than that, I wouldn't be like coming back. <laughs> like this dad just wants to hang out with his son again. So 
I don't know. We were talking a little earlier about why this movie doesn't all come together. And for me, that was like a big part of it. Yeah, this is funny because I feel like now this is the conversation basically that we were sort of having on the drive home after watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure so it's it was. like this is like the most cartoon feelings y episode, maybe in a weird way. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I had big problems with the pants dad thing. And I won't get into it deeply, but one of the reasons and like one of the reasons I came out of this movie kind of upset was because I, I don't I just I know that the the dad situation and the, the like two brothers who like really didn't get to know their dad is like from the director and like a real life experience, but like I I didn't experience this, but my husband's like dad died um, pretty early on into our relationship, and it was terrible for so many reasons. And like just sitting here watching this and like watching you know younger people deal with that was like too much for me and it also like made me angry sometimes in the way that it was handled like the idea of like having your dad there or like being able to bring your dad back for a day like it just I don't know I just I it's definitely not what I would have done I don't think it works for multiple reasons and it like raises these horrible questions yeah it's like too many too many things I I don't know I, I wouldn't have done it and I also think having the it, like it being such a source of these slapstick moments just makes it like it's not funny. You know what I mean? And it's not like, oh, this movie isn't funny and that's why. It's just like the idea of having your dead parent there with you almost is really horrifying to me by gut instinct more than I'm like, well, this is like a fun road trip movie thing. I'm like, no, this is a huge deal. <laughs> like – that isn't funny. I would be crying the entire time if I was in this situation. I would not be like having a fun road trip with my brother. I would be having a full-on emotional breakdown. So I just don't like it. And then just like being aware of that, it's just kind of rough. And I, one of the things I remember saying after we watched it was I think it would have all been so much more effective and like emotionally resonant without being distracting is if the dad wasn't there. Yeah. And I don't, I don't necessarily mind the resurrection for a day thing, although it would have been cooler if they'd couched it in like a, you can summon me from the astral plane or whatever. Because that's like a D&D &D thing that is not, you are coming back from the dead. Um, and it sort of is that anyway, since it's only like a 24-hour period, like I'm coming back for a day. So why didn't you just have it be like, I'm going to open up a portal to like the plane of the dead or whatever, instead of... I don't know, muddling the messaging, that's fine. But I think it would have been better if he wasn't there the whole time. Like, have them mess up the spell at the beginning, and he doesn't come, and then they go on this road trip. Yeah. And then maybe at the end it works, and they have this, like, this moment, you know, and you can handle that when it comes, or, like... Honestly, I also would have been fine if it didn't work or if they didn't make it quite there in time. And so then you never know if the spell was even real or not and that they'd gotten this adventure out of it. But having the dad be there and just being this like cutesy bit character and then this kid also doesn't even get to meet him at the end. It was all just like too stressful for me. Yeah, it has a very dark undercurrent through all the scenes simply because it's it's all just... You know, in illusion, if you know anything about stories like this, you know that they're 
veering down the wrong path to want to bring the dad back. Like there's not really a happy ending there. Like maybe Barley shouldn't have even uh, have seen him because he he didn't Barley didn't really seem to have anything to resolve with his father. It was more Ian's like interest and curiosity, I think, that pushes it forward because they give him like the magic ability that connects him deeper with his dad, and he has the tape that he's listening to and having like this impossible conversation with the dad tape. So he's like more, I guess you could even say, not obsessed exactly, but like resilient to like move on. Um, Whereas Barley has like other issues. Well, it's interesting though, because I didn't pick up on this the first time, I guess, watching this, but I noticed it the second time when I was rewatching it. And Barley, when they're having their like Cheeto ride down the river, they're having this like quiet moment that's serious. And they're having this serious conversation between them as brothers. And Barley mentions something like, I'd really love to have more than four memories of dad. And at the beginning of the movie, he talks about having three memories of dad. So Ian, of course, is like, wait, do you have another memory of dad that you've never told me about? And then Barley tells this story that I actually feel like is very, is like pretty affecting. And it was a moment where I was a little more sucked in uh, that I had been up to that point. And he's talking about when the dad was sick and he remembers that he was supposed to go in and say goodbye. And he was so freaked out by all of the hospital machines and all of the tubes and everything and the way that his dad looked that he couldn't do it and was like too afraid to do it. And so that is interesting to me in that they're specifically raising at that point the reason that Barley should be the one to talk to the dad because he did have this unresolved moment Oh, where I forgot about that. He failed to say goodbye to his dad as he was dying. And Mm -hmm. so this would be, I guess, his chance to fix that. And there's something there. I like that in a way. And it, like, that's sad (laughs) for sure. (laughs) But I also, I still don't like it because we don't get to see any of it at the end. And it just doesn't, I don't know. I don't have a good solution. I just know that I wasn't satisfied with it in the moment. And when I realized that Ian wasn't going to get to talk to the dad, I just remember being like very disappointed. <laughs> oh, really? I guess I think it's just, I guess more from a standing, I, I don't know how emotionally invested I was in all of this. Like I have a complicated relationship with my dad where I think a lot about who he was more than knowing him. Like I, I wouldn't say I've known him for the last 20 years. So everything that is emotional about him and like revealing is from my youth. So I I do connect with the idea of like the, the like deep desire to like want more information and like understand maybe where you're coming, you know, who you are, like by way of knowing your father better. So those things are there, which like maybe gives me a little bit more of a a connection. And they're like, you know, boys running around, which is always going to be like a default, like easy connection. But, uh, you know, there's a real commitment to Ian's point of view, whereas I think that's like seems to be a bit of a problem for you because you never you never really get a good look at Barley and you definitely never see his point of view. The closest you get is like when he's urging Ian on to like um, do the spell on the gas tank, you get like close ups of Barley, which are simply like to make you feel like he's encroaching on Ian's space. 
And so then when we get to the end and they have this elaborate setup to separate Ian from Barley and like place him behind this stone wall by way of like a giant like school dinosaur thing. I did think that that was clever. And I don't know if that means it's good storytelling, but I was like, oh, I kind of like this setup in the way he's watching through this tiny window. And it might have just been more me responding to being in the theater and um, seeing like the point of view crop down to like the little hole he was looking through. I I just felt uh, uh, it just stuck in my mind, probably just because there was so much black on the screen, which is like kind of the same thing of like with Inside Out connecting with some of the abstract scenes because you're like blown away that they're doing this on the big screen. Um, it's just not something you're used to seeing. So I think there's like a couple little clever moves they pull, but overall I think I'm kind of on board with you and feel that there's like an, a sad undercurrent Which is funny here. because I was frustrated by that. Oh yeah. Like having him literally be cut off from the whole point of the movie and like, I get what they were going for at the end. Mm-hmm. And I was not really invested with Ian meeting the dad but if you're going to tee that up as the whole point and then like physically block him from doing it. And I was just already annoyed by the dad thing. So it's like a lot of the stuff I like about this movie is adjacent to the dad thing around the dad thing yeah. and not about the main plot, which I just really didn't like for a few reasons. And that was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I honestly feel like they did a good job of, bringing it home with the brother's relationship yeah, and having them, there's this nice scene at the end where Ian is sitting with the dad legs and he's looking through this list that he'd made of like things I want to do with my dad. And he realizes that they've done them all together, like he and his brother. And that was really nice. That was genuinely really nice. And I, I think it would have again been a lot more resonant even if the dad wasn't there literally. And to have him be more of like, Like, it's weird for them to go on a quest to find their dad when the dad is half there, even though it obviously makes sense that he's half there, so he's not really there. But he is, though, and it's just like, I don't know. You don't go for the quest, like, on a quest for, like, ah, we need to take (laughs) this ring to Mordor, but we have half of Mordor with us. Like, we just need to go get the other. Like, it's like, that's just not how it works. Yeah, my friend, um, he used he still does it. Well, actually, he's not really working on this project anymore, but he has this fantasy comic called Rutabaga, the adventure chef. And the story is Rutabaga who travels through like different fantasy realms cooking. And at the beginning of the story, he has a character, he has a giant backpack with all his cooking utensils because just logically your character needs to carry stuff. So give him a backpack, but pretty quickly, my friend is like, I resent giving him that backpack because now he just has to figure out what to do with it constantly as like settings change. I feel like these dad pants are kind of like that. You can see once they play through the emotional gimmicks of meeting the dad by way of pants, like reconnecting with him and like having it be sentimental, then he's more just mostly a prop that's being carried around and they try to give him a little bit to do. And there is sort of the, the cute sweet dance scene but a dance scene is always kind of charming but then by the end you're right like he's really just being carried through like the the end part of this story but they're just stuck with him so yeah Poor little pants <laughs> with nobody inside them <laughs> yeah. uh so that that concludes my thoughts on the pants um so i think basically other things i have to say are really about 
I think the craft of the staging of these scenes the and the way they use the mechanics of the plot, I think they do a pretty good job of keeping you, I wouldn't say quite on the edge of your seat because this is like a kid's movie. I'm not really like that invested and think anybody's actually going to get hurt. Like this world is very safe for being like, a, you know, a fantasy world with all different types of creatures interacting. But uh, I think they do a good job of having the characters constantly riding up to the line of failure, like with everything that they're doing. And I don't think I get that from all the Disney or Pixar, like action adventure movies that we've been seeing lately, like uh, Raya, the last dragon, or like even maybe Zootopia. Like they're they're with these movies. There always seems not specifically Raya, but Zootopia, because it's another contemporary setting it seems to promise a little bit more danger or like groundedness because the world looks kind of real. Like the, it has asphalt and street lamps and, and people have like familiar social situations. So when you introduce these like crazy fantastical elements, we're always going to have like these questions come up that usually aren't resolved. Like, you know, the questions of like, what's the dad thinking? being pants like we wouldn't have that question if this was like a a flight of dragons style movie we'd be like all right whatever there's like floating pants man um this story's not that deep so let's just not think hard about it it's normal for this world yeah like pixar just kind of brings a level of realism that if they're doing something like you you kind of want answers for it um they they promise more than some of these like lesser cartoons and we demand to have them <laughs> yeah, so we demand contact it. us immediately. One eight hundred. It's flashing on the screen. I think they can see it. <laughs> Dial now. All right. So you know, I've, I've I've some various questions about like what ideas the characters represent beyond just this idea of brotherhood. But I'm more curious to try to answer this question here. Um, in English, I don't think we have a word for this, but there's a very specific feeling that I get, and I'm sure a lot of other people get it. Maybe you get this too. When a movie is very clearly evoking another movie and it makes you feel not old exactly, it makes you feel you've seen it before, but it also makes you wonder if this is just simply like, the circle of narrative, like we're always going to have beats like this happen over and over again. And I'm specifically referring to, I guess the the late second act of this movie is constantly doing like Indiana Jones and the last crusade stuff. Like they have the step of faith where he, um, Ian walks out onto nothing. That's exactly like a trial in Indiana Jones of the last crusade. They dive under like a giant stone door that's sliding down and pull something through in the last second. Indiana Jones in his hat. Exactly that. There's a couple other like Spielbergian things. And, um, I get this like feeling of exhaustion with just like, Oh, is this all we're left with? We're just going to do like, you know, Indiana Jones adventure over and over again. Or are we going to like move past it? at some point. There's got to be a word for that. I don't know what that feeling is. And I don't know how you feel about if you're getting that sensation. I don't know your relationship with like early 80s Indiana Jones, like action adventure stuff. I mean, not honestly, not extensively. Like I've seen the Indiana Jones movies and I don't have much of an association with them really. And I don't know them super well. So 
I won't say I felt like a particular association, but I do, I'm like trying really hard to just only be constructive about this movie, which I think is like a seven out of 10, probably (laughs) gun to my head. If I had a rotten tomatoes, this movie, (laughs) it's good. It's not bad, but there were aspects of it that I just personally didn't like that have nothing to do with the quality of the movie. But there are some complaints that I have like that, where it does feel like, I guess I just wondered why are we doing the eighties theme? It's actually starting to feel a little weird Yeah, because, and I think you can really pinpoint it in a lot of ways to the first season of stranger things where it certainly wasn't the first, but it was like this pinnacle of 80s resurgence fever. And I I liked it. And I I love 80s stuff in general. Obviously, 1982 was apparently the best year for (laughs) many, many cartoon movies and similar. And I love all that stuff. And I love 80s music. But like, I'm getting a little fatigued of the pop culture obsession with the 80s now and this one i was just like an 80s teen movie huh okay maybe it'll be fine but it really did feel like this is an 80s teen movie yeah and then i was like oh all right i want it to be something different and you know i'm not saying you have to give that up entirely because there are things that i like about it and I, I even feel like if they'd really leaned into the D&D thing, it could have been something kind of special in a way that I don't think they landed with the D&D DNA of this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just... This isn't exactly 80s either, but something I noticed about the humor of this movie in general, and <laughs> this is probably the most cutting criticism I can offer of this movie, is um, the humor, I would describe it as... When somebody trips off screen and then they go, I'm okay, after <laughs> that joke that you've seen in 10 million movies. And it's like, really not funny. <laughs> but there are a lot of jokes in this movie that have that set up and payoff. That it's just like, I know this one. And um, sometimes that's fine. But if it's like too constant, it's a little tiresome. And it just... This movie just didn't have, like, the spark of originality, I think, that I'm, like, looking for. And that's not to cut it off at the knees, forgive the horrible pun. (laughs) But it was, I couldn't really just get lost in it. I just couldn't do it. And I I think some of the limitations of the messaging are in the setting, like this sort of fake fantasy movie world that is perpetually the 80s because it's where you get to have a cool van, you get to have like this puffy vest, you get funny sunglasses, you get just iconic aspects of like suburban, like mundane culture. It's just a a really safe place to tell this type of story. And it's, it is yeah, you could call it 80s, but really I feel like at this point it's like a fantasy 80s that's just a a way to frame like whatever type of like magical story you want to tell. And it it hinders them from doing things like okay, well is this in any way a commentary on escapism or like the modern investment in fantasy story and our like disassociation with reality or is it about like the preservation of like historical 
artifacts like Barley is very into. Like all these things are just dead ends in terms of commentary because this world looks real, but it's it might as well just be a Disneyland that they're roaming around in because there's no there's no backstory to what this place is other than the backstory of it used to be more magical. Uh, just believe us because we told you in the in the setup at the beginning. Like there's no like socio-cultural context to any of this stuff. So therefore there are no stakes when like it, it comes up. It, they're just, um, you know, roadblocks to plot or like setups to, to be a gag or whatever. Yeah, like I did feel that way about the Manticore Tavern when you go and it's this theme restaurant. And I was like, I don't totally hate this idea. No, and it's, it's kind cool. of fun. Yeah, right. Yeah, like there are aesthetic things about it that I enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. But I also was like weirdly aware in the moment that they could just make this place in Disney World. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so I was like, okay, I mean, like, that, I can't even criticize you for that. I would love for Disney Pixar to hire me to make scenes in their movies that they could also put in Disney World. That would be right. so cool. But it just feels cheap. And then, honestly, maybe it's just because, like, these settings are boring and that not the, the movie, but, like, a theme restaurant. We're all, like, ew, right? Like, <laughs> that's the point. That's the joke in the movie is, like, ugh. Like, nobody wants to be here. And if there's a weird mascot and stuff Mm -hmm. so then i'm not as like maybe that's why it was harder for me to get into it and i was realizing that like modern day fantasy is just a mashup of things that i don't like that much because Mm -hmm. i like fantasy for fantasy not so i can think about applebee's (laughs) you know like it's like escapism but then also right back in your own suburb where you are right now and i'm like no Take me to New Zealand. I don't want to be here. Right. Like it makes me wonder. So I don't know if there's maybe there's an answer to this because I think sometimes I don't pick up on all the details. But at the end, when Barley figures out where the Phoenix gem is, he pulls it and he awakens a curse. And it, as far as I know, all we know is that there was a curse that he forgot he knew about. But what does it mean that there is a curse in that object, like, does that mean anything or is it just a way to set up this giant dragon? Just magic. Okay. So that's why, like, it's a little weird if you're looking for layering of themes. This movie doesn't really have it because it's kind of the same thing with the Manticore Tavern where if you think about it, it gets a little weird because he knows. So you go to this Manticore Tavern to get the map to go on your quest. And he has this knowledge from like ancient times. So what is this Manticore like thousands of years old and now she's reduced to doing this? Like it's very strange when you think about it and they're kind of telling this story in a, in a, I mean, that's how quests are. If you sit down to play a D and D game, it's usually like you're in a tavern and a wizard is there and he is like, I'll pay you a hundred gold pieces to get my Phoenix gem or whatever. And he just knows where it is. And if there's a curse, whatever. There's dungeons, there's traps in it. Like, that's just the game. But if you take it into, like, a real world, like, why why is all that stuff happening? Well, that's just how things used to be when life was a D&D game. It just, it falls apart under scrutiny, really. Yeah, it's like that fundamental problem of storytelling where um like the reveal of information across the course of the trick that's being 
pulled on you? Like, what do you know when? What do characters know? When did they know it? When do you know that they know it? This movie is very muddled, like in that way, which hinders like investment, I think. Like ex- the Manticore thing is exactly what I'm talking about. Like the all through that scene, you're just wondering, okay, she has all these tattoos, which we find out later, but like, yeah, what does she remember? How old is she? Like all these things, they they need to kind of be known by the people putting together these storyboards and like story cards in these early meetings. And I, I find it quite baffling that you have all these people working on these projects for them to not care that much about that. And I think just because we've been talking about a lot of fantasy stuff, a lot of that 80s stuff is so much more endearing, even though it's um, cheaply made and maybe they didn't, they didn't create the final product that's like extremely satisfying or even fully entertaining. But there's like a true commitment to some of that early creative process of coming up with meaning and reason for using these tropes. Like, you can, as simple as like the dragon in this movie is simply just like a third act Avenger style fight. It's not because there's any love for the idea of a dragon, which is something like in all these other movies we've talked to up to here, there, there's like something magical about the fact that we have a dragon in this movie or a unicorn or whatever. There's just a belief that that symbolically represents something. This dragon is just designed to like look unique and cool and be a a fun thing to fight, bring the mom into the battle a little bit, like check off all these boxes. And the only thing it's not doing is evoking the idea and magic of a dragon. So it's like a hollow idea. And how is nobody- Literally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, is that the point? Probably not. Um, And also it's made out of the school. Why? Simply because it was like a clever play off the idea that they could have the- the mascot on the side of the building so it can come full circle. There's a lot of like... Let me just say. Yeah. Let me just say. Yeah, yeah. That is kind of funny. It's cute, yeah. (laughs) Like, there's a part where... So, like, there's a dragon mascot painted on the wall of the high school and the the head of that dragon, which is, like, cute, cartoony dragon, becomes the face of the monster. And there's a time during the fight that its eyebrows on that, like, wall, like, pop out and, like, angle down to be angry eyes... And that is funny, and I like it a lot. I just want to celebrate that moment and be enthusiastic about that. Yeah. But I agree with everything else you're saying. But, I mean, that is the dividing line why it's, it is it is so challenging for us to talk about this stuff because, one, we come to this stuff because we want to see the dragon with the funny eyebrow moment. That's, like, essential to, like, what makes these movies special and good. But then, on the other hand, we are people that want, like, stories that are interesting and compelling and resonate. And also we've seen a lot of so you're going to have to work hard to surprise us on that level. And a lot of the time, these stories are totally unfulfilling on that side. So it's such an unbalanced, you know, experience (laughs) with, with some of these new movies, especially the ones that look so good like this. You're like, how can you look so amazing, but really have nothing interesting to say? (laughs) Yeah, it just, it feels like, like, where do I begin? The the way that this movie is structured is very, like, quest format, as I mentioned earlier, where each trial that they attempt on this quest is very distinct to where you could easily just, like, slot one out, put a new one in there, and, like, from scene to scene, 
nobody would really notice. The only forward momentum is ostensibly they are moving physically closer to their destination with each one. So you could lose that, like, I need to cast an invisible bridge spell over this canyon to get to the other side. You could just take that whole thing out and put something else there, like whatever you wanted. It could be like, they find themselves in like a lava cave underground and they have to like, you know, navigate, whatever. You could put anything. And that's good in a way. I mean, that gives you a lot of freedom to play with things. But then it also, it becomes kind of obvious that they aren't building in a linear fashion to some thematic thing. And the closest thing I can think of is when they're driving on the highway and Ian, well, Ian is driving and he's freaking out. And then his brother is like, you'll never be ready. Like you have to merge, which gets me every time I do actually really like because the fear when you're learning how to drive, like that's real. That's how it goes. The first time you merge onto the highway, (laughs) it's a very realistic moment. And then, you know, that's one of the things that he's like, I wish my dad could teach me how to drive. And then he realized that his brother has like fulfilled that role for him. That's pretty cool. But that's not even like a trial, really. But like, there's nothing thematically resonant that I can think of about this invisible bridge that like crosses the canyon. And I can think maybe they're trying to go for, well, Ian is very unconfident. Yeah. And so the only way that this spell works is that he has to believe that it will work. So the minute that he wavers in his confidence, he will fall. Mm -hmm. But they don't play that up enough to the point that I I don't really think about it while it's happening. And I also, like, maybe I'm just not convinced by Ian being this unconfident character. I mean, he's definitely an unconfident person in the way that he acts. I just, like, am not very drawn into that for whatever reason. And then, I don't know, I think I would have liked it if the brother had, like, pumped him up a little bit more deliberately while he was doing that. Some It just doesn't feel like, when I'm watching it, it feels like just, like, a fun thing that's happening yeah. and kind of scary because he could fall. It doesn't feel like, oh, this is, like, they're bonding, you know, like, they're invested, like, in the, the brother's relationships. Like, it doesn't have the impact on me that I want it to have. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't, I don't um, care much about Ian. He he is either very guarded or there's just no development to who he is because he, you know, I think I'll, I'll say this basically anytime I talk about a character, but if they look like they just walked on the screen for the first time and you don't get a sense of like anything existing before that moment, like right away, I think that's just like a a real bad start. And Ian doesn't really seem to have much of a backstory. The tape scene is almost, it's not even enough because it's more just explaining something about him to you. But it's like, he really has never talked to those kids before. He's like that awkward. Like, I understand trying to invite people over. Like, we all still have those problems. That's like a charming little uh, moment of insecurity and like weakness that endears you to him. But he goes to school with these kids. Like he has zero friends. He has like the, you know, what, what are his interests? Like his brother is, has a backstory. It's like that. It's like the Harry Potter problem. Basically. It's like all Harry's friends are a million times more interesting than him. And not to always it's exactly who I thought of. Yeah. I mean, Harry Potter it's just the most yeah. iconic one. I feel like we always, I feel like we always bring them up. Cause I know some people listen to the show probably like care a lot about Harry Potter and you and I both do to some degree. It's like, it's part of our our existence. Yeah, like I grew up with Harry Potter. I can't. But it know, is the worst type of protagonist, right? It's like 
it's just a vessel for the plot and like for more interesting characters to bounce off of. And their development is usually like satisfying because it resolves the story, not because like we really cared about their journey. Yeah. Um, Harry's a little different because he has seven books and that's like a, it's written. You get a lot of interior stuff, but with Ian, yeah, I'm on board with you. It's like, he's, there's not much there. What's funny. I'm like, I'm casting about for comparison. Because that's just how this is going. But for some reason, like Finding Nemo pops into my head as a char- a, like a movie with like a, a nervous, unconfident main character in the dad, Marlon. And even he's like a kind of unlikable, just personality wise. But he's, you don't sit there being like, man, I just don't care about Marlon. Because he's kind of three dimensional, pun. Not just because he's a CG fish, but because he is. Uh, there's a reason that he's so nervous about everything. You are exposed directly to kind of his emotional trauma. So you're sort of like there on that journey with him. You know exactly why he's the way that he is. And uh, and there's also like so much attention or enough attention kind of given to his relationship with his son, I think, that it all sort of like fleshes out his motivations. You feel sympathetic even when you're like, you need to chill, like you're being really obnoxious or whatever, like be nicer to Dory, like get your shit together. And in this sense, like Ian's just a boy. He's just a boy. There's nothing more. And yes, like he's a boy who doesn't have his dad anymore. But the only reason I should care about that is because we all know that it's sad to not have a dad. And then when the dad is there, it's just like, oh, he's pants. Like, isn't that funny? And like, in my head, I was like, I'm, this is traumatic. Like, it should be traumatic. And like, you don't, if my dad came back and he was dead and he was, came back as half pants, I would throw up. Like, I would be an emotional wreck. Like, the slapstick thing, why? I don't. I don't know. So then it's like, I just don't, he doesn't feel like a real person. Like he's not reacting to anything in a way that is real to me. And like, yeah, everybody's been awkward and like socially weird and like been nervous to invite people over. But even the friends are kind of like that. It's like this group of friends that he clearly goes to school with and he's like going to invite them all over. And they're just like staring at him with these sort of like neutral smiles and like, you kind of get the feeling that no matter what he would have said, they would have been like, yes, great. <laughs> like, they have nothing more to offer than that. And it's just, just it doesn't feel real. Yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I, I would say, aside from the manticore, which is hinting at like a more compelling character, even the mom is really just an accessory to the journey. Even they they try to give her some like action moments at the end, but I feel like they don't really add up to anything. Like uh they're just recalling that she was like working to an exercise video at the beginning and then they play the song. So it's like a gag payoff. But she really doesn't have an existence outside of just specifically supporting the boys because like your her husband is there. Like yeah, Out of all is... the people having an emotional connection, and not to, I mean, that's a whole can of words to open, just like her just disinterest in it all, as if it's something that like happens, like, oh, well, sometimes boys awaken half their father and, you know, they have to go on their little journey. 
And moms just got to support that. And when they're, you know, let them do their thing. It's, it feels like it's that because she just like stares blank eyed at it at the end. <laughs> that feels like very 80s to me and like the yeah. total dismissal of the mom character right. who's just there. But I also don't think that's a good excuse. And I, I remember talking to you about this yeah. too, where, because I guess I'm just naturally going to be like, okay, well, if I was the mom, uh, I would be losing it because I would also be kind of pissed that the love of my life or whatever was like, yeah, I'm going to come back for one day, but I really just want to hang out with the kids. <laughs> and like, right. I get that too. I do, especially because like the point of that really is like, I won't get to meet my son. And that's like, I want to do that. So that's why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. But like, I think I would be absolutely devastated. <laughs> And, like, I don't care if I have a new centaur boyfriend, you know? Like, that's going to be emotional. And if Neil died, please don't. <laughs> He's not in here, but I hope he doesn't. That would I really hope he doesn't. Me too. But if he did, and then I got a new centaur boyfriend, and then he came back for a day, yeah. I would want to see him, and right. it would be a big deal. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine just being, like, casually, like, huh, well, good luck. Oh, I guess I better follow you because I heard it's dangerous or whatever. Like, what? Like, just give her a little bit of emotion. I would have loved a little scene where she's clearly worked up about it. Or, like, let her meet the dad. Make a movie about the mom. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you know what I I think, like, to kind of round out this, this frustration, I, I wanted to bring up the early conversations that, the creative team is having about these projects because I think it does come down to probably political choices of like, well, the point of view of this movie is Ian. So therefore, I bet somebody had a note card that was like mom's story. There probably was a row of that because I, I just feel like it, it. Why wouldn't it have happened? Like I, I would have written it. Um, most people probably would have like you're also, you know, wanting to know there was probably that curiosity, but. And she's like Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Like, I'm sure at some point they had some more stuff there. Yeah. Like, but I think it it with stuff like this, it comes down to like, d is it following the point of view? No. Shut it down because we're we're going forward. Like, we're running out of time. And um, that is like good storytelling advice to some degree. But also like, you know, it becomes a problem when you're not being like flexible with that. Like it makes some moments stronger to have the point of view exclusively Ian's through the whole film, but also it, it really limits like some other things to be like f so committed to that. But maybe that's like the nature of um, this type of like kid friendly animation is you can't shift gears too much like that in terms of point of view because it, it uh, creates too much gray area and it uh, it loses that like just simple appeal for the kid. I think what it comes down to is this. This is a thought I had earlier, and it's just been crystallizing in here because we were talking about this story kind of being a little unsatisfying in various ways. And I was hearkening back to our recent episodes about fantasy and how like a lot of the movies that we talked about are kind of weird, and yet we still mine a lot of enjoyment out of them. If that's like The Last Unicorn, Cartoon Hobbit, like, really, you could point to any of those movies and be like, weird story, like, weird choices, weird stuff happening in here. Um, and I'm going to, like, hone in on uh, Home In on The Hobbit as an example, like the animated 
Hobbit movie that we talked about recently, which, as we discussed in our episode, ends in this very abrupt, strange way where it's like, by the way, the five armies are here. And then anyway, he's going home and by stay tuned for part two of the story. And it's like kind of weird. But that movie, I genuinely think is really good. And, and there was a reason I think that we liked it so much, like when we were kids, and then still enjoy it when we watch it as adults. And it's because The Hobbit, Bilbo, is really good. Like, he's just a good character with appeal. And so you can forgive a lot, or the minutia of the story doesn't have to carry so much weight, because I really just like seeing him think about stuff and solve problems that he has to present, like be presented with. I like his personality. I didn't, he just feels like real, like he feels like a real character. And then this movie, as we were just kind of saying, is like Ian doesn't really. And so all of the other stuff stands out just a little bit more for better or for worse. In this case, I guess for worse, but like because I'm not really invested emotionally in Ian's story, then I'm like kind of casting around a little bit being like, okay, so like, what's the thing? Like what, you know, what's the thing that like, I'm going to really just like, whoosh, like I'm sucked into this now. And then it just doesn't really happen for whatever reason. And that's not even to say that it won't happen for, for other people. But I think that's like kind of the the main problem from our point of view is just feeling like Ian is not interesting enough to be like, yes, like I want to hang out with Ian. I like, I don't really. Yeah. I mean, he's basically a gelatinous cube of a character. I feel like. I'd love it if we could get a high dollar big budge film about a gelatinous cube. I think they're underrepresented in cinema, frankly. Um, there's been a couple good ones, but yeah, for the most part, we, they're not enough cube-related content. Yeah, let's get out the note cards and start writing this. Onward to the end of the episode. Ira, tell us what's next on our quest. <laughs> Is that your riddle cat voice? Um... I think my riddle cat voice was just like a distinctive part of my personality that I am also using now. Okay. I don't know what it is. It's buried in there. It's my theatrical voice. All right, everyone. You can check out more of Caitlin's voices in our episode archive and all kinds of other content about cartoons. And I'm in there too as well. All this stuff is over at cartoonfeelings.com. You can tweet at us or join us on Instagram, and both of those can be found at Feeling Cartoons. True. And if you have thoughts or questions, you can write them to us at cartoonfeelingspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear if there's anything that you'd like to hear from us. Uh, and if you are enjoying the podcast, it would be super cool if you would consider taking the time to rate us or and review us on Apple Podcasts. And uh, above all, just... Share us with any of your friends that you think might like what you're hearing. That's all for now, folks. See you next time. <laughs>